Welcome to Season 2 of White Shores, the podcast for spiritual beings having a human experience. Let me invite you to walk once more beside me on White Shores to talk about the real meaning of life and being sensitive, intuitive, a mystic in a material world. Let's talk about dreams, rituals, personal transformation, the possibility of an afterlife, angels and other infinite possibilities. Season 1, recorded in 2019, featured interviews with some of the world's leading scientists currently researching consciousness, the existence of the mind separate from the brain. Listen to those mind-opening interviews if you can, because they left clear footprints in the sand for the carefully selected healers, psychics, mediums, authors, artists and experts featured in season two to follow and speak to us from their hearts, the place where all love and wisdom begins, and to speak to us in 2020, the year the world turned upside down and spiritual clarity needed as never before. So, now the scene is set, let's walk barefoot on the sand and then pause a while to gaze together at the horizon to see what magic lies beyond the material. Thank you for arriving safely today on White Shores. It's wonderful you are here because I'm going to introduce you to a sensitive soul who is also a body image expert. With the world in turmoil due to the pandemic, and forcing us all to reevaluate what truly matters in this life, gentle souls with their focus on compassion, empathy, and kindness that have previously been marginalized in the past are now lights in the darkness showing us the way forward. We need to hear more from them, and that's why my guest is here today. You will hear how gentle and compassionate she is just from the tone of her voice. She's also here today because she's a specialist in body image disorders. And if you are listening and have at some point hated your body or felt uncomfortable in your own skin or know someone experiencing that dark pain and want to help them, this interview is for you. In my young adult years, I struggled with anorexia and serious body image problems. Looking back now, I can see that my real hunger was not for food, but for deeper meaning and purpose in my life. And it wasn't until I fully understood this that my body, life, heart and spirit were saved. My dislike of my body was, I believe, connected to an unconscious understanding that the material, although it is a source of great pleasure, it can never be a source of true fulfilment. But sadly, the material world falsely falsely presents external stuff such as careers, relationships, money, and of course, appearance as the meaning. Body image issues, I believe, along with addictions of any kind, are a cry for help, and they do need careful treatment and consultations with doctors and family members and loved ones. But in all this treatment, the spiritual dimension in healing should not be ignored. That means finding a deeper meaning and purpose to your life. And my guest will talk about the importance of that in healing from body disorders in our interview. And while on the subject of spiritual healing, do stay with me after the interview for a piece of musical 
Heavenly Healing, played by my son and Royal College of Music scholar Robert, to thank my guest for her time and also to help unite the creative and logical parts of your brain as you listen and bring you some much needed inner peace and harmony in mind, spirit and body. Stay tuned. If you would like to find out more about my books, warning, I'm a serial spiritual writer, there are a lot of them, my research, my media appearances and online talks and events, as well as my latest title and opportunities to win free gifts, please do visit www.theresachung.com and subscribe to my newsletter. If you want to listen to season one, you can find it on the podcast page of my website. And all episodes of both season one and season two are available on iTunes or wherever you download your podcast. Be honoured and grateful if you could leave a review there, as it helps the podcast get wider circulation and spreads the word that spirit is real. Walking beside me today on White Shores is a gentle and kind soul. Doesn't the world need more people like that right now? She's also a body image expert, and haven't we all hated the way we look at some point in our lives? If you've read some of my earlier books, I do honestly share my battle with anorexia and how I truly believe light from the other side helped to heal me. I also talk about my belief that anorexia is a hunger or a thirst for spiritual meaning, a total rejection of the body and a, a longing to be lighter to escape the material. And in times past, saints who fasted were venerated. Of course, I now, you know, as I get older, I understand eating disorders can kill. They're lethal and they offer nothing but pain and torment, really. And they're not actually the ideal path to any kind of enlightenment. And that is why I admire the work and research of my next guest so very much, because she offers a spiritual explanation for the surge in eating disorders in recent years, but she also offers solutions and much needed hope and inspiration in the advice she offers and also in her life story. This lady is called Dr. Nicole Schnackenberg. She is a child, community and educational psychologist, a physiotherapist, a 200-hour Hatha yoga teacher and a certified Kundalini yoga teacher with extensive training in yoga therapy. She currently divides her time between her role as a psychologist at Southend Educational Psychology Service, her position as a trustee of the Body Dysmorphic Disorder Foundation, and of the Give Back Yoga Foundation UK, and her facilitation of the Eat, Breathe, Thrive Yoga Program for Food and Body Image Issues. In addition to her contribution to projects at the Minded Institute, she also works with the Special Yoga Foundation in London and is director of the Yoga in Healthcare Alliance. My goodness, <laughs> this lady must have not a second spare with all that. I, I was just reading it and thinking, wow, this is so much. It's amazing. Hello, Nicole. Thank you for sparing me some time. Oh, thank you so much for the invitation, Teresa. It's a delight to speak with you today. <laughs> Thank you. I'm going to ask you your first question now. Um, and it's right now, substance is finally, you know, in this moment in time, more important than looks or appearance, isn't it? In a way it never has before because of the key workers and what they do, the healthcare workers out there saving lives. Nobody's really interested in hair and makeup and appearance and body image as much as in the past. And I believe that the pandemic has forced us all to value people for what they do and not for how they look. 
And I'd love your thoughts on that in a minute. And have we seen the end of the impossible, perfect look, the Instagram stars who now can't get their treatments or pose for their selfies because nobody really cares about seeing that right now. They want to see the healthcare workers and hear the stories of kindness and connection. We want to hear from real people with real bodies and real lives. And I, I'd love your thoughts on, on that right now. Thank you, Teresa. I'd love to be able to say, and it would be my deep hope that that was it for body image struggles. You know, this would be the the difference that made the difference in terms of our attention shifting away from the way our bodies look and towards the health of our bodies and what our bodies can do, including those bodies of the NHS workers that are out there saving lives. Um, I sadly think that body image struggles are here to stay with us for a while and I imagine that lots of people are having different reactions to the current situation and certainly I know with my work that to be the case where um, for some people the additional time this may be affording them is actually um, fueling additional rumination actually and then for others as you say um, it seems to have shifted that attention away from the physical appearance and towards other things. And I think for sure this period of time will support us to at least conceptualise things a bit differently, even if it doesn't shift and change the whole paradigm overnight. Um, but I wonder also in the way that people are coming closer together and people, certainly I've experienced, Teresa, truly authentic conversations with people people mm. that maybe I've had small talk with for the last 15 years you know yes. and then suddenly because there's a sense of um, commonality in what we're experiencing there's this depth to the conversation that we're having and there's this openness and I'm finding things out about people I honestly would not guess I'm so sorry um for anyone listening as I said this is real life a real I haven't got a sound proof studio in my home obviously so much as I try to limit my animals uh, making noise they just interrupted Nicole making a brilliant point so sorry about that Nicole you just have to live with it no worries it's very sweet actually maybe the dog has something to say about it too well I think you made a very very point you know authentic and I, I believe animals are so authentic and empathetic but that's interesting because I've kind of focused on the, the 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 silver lining aspect that you know we are kind of like look having to go within to cope with this but you are absolutely right that for someone who is in the depths of an eating disorder suddenly they're at home their job's gone their distraction the gym whatever that may have helped them cope has gone and all there is is them in the fridge mm. and um what's your advice I know it's very hard because this is a huge topic for someone who is who's not finding the strength from it that some people might you know and thinking well this is a time to focus on me and you know you know build myself up and my self-esteem who is who is struggling with the food demons and what what would you be your advice yes I think it, it could potentially be a very difficult time for people as you say in the height of a an eating struggle of any form and certainly when I've spoken to people and talked to them about what they are finding helpful at the moment and we've thought collaboratively about that it's it's as often is in live trees isn't it it's the simple thing so it's keeping a routine um also around 
food and eating so that there's a sense of if needed containment around that also perhaps if people have um, for whatever reason got into the practice of having similar sorts of foods each day and suddenly their access to those foods is different mm-hmm. um, you know finding similar foods that that feel comfortable um, and that they and that people are therefore happy to eat so that they're not um because there's something about stability at the moment isn't there there's something about moving beyond difficulties by facing fears and really diving into it and then there's something about acknowledging that this situation that we're in is is very different and therefore for some people it may be more at the moment a period of kind of maintaining the status quo or stabilizing rather than really pushing themselves for others it will be the perfect time to dive into that fear and kind of um, explore and express uh, what that might be speaking to so I think that routine can help that finding foods that one feels comfortable with can help reaching out um, whether it be now by phone, phone or video conference or those that one is living with to express what's difficult in relation to food and eating in the current situation. And actually people might be quite surprised that they're not alone in that. You know, even people that haven't struggled with eating difficulties may find themselves eating differently at the moment. Yeah, well, there's the boredom now if you're not a key worker, isn't it, that you might be mm-hmm. stuck at home and, you know, it's the novelty's kind of worn off really. The longer this goes on, and That's uh, and that could soon lead lead to problems as well. Do you feel from your research that because um, obviously it's such a mystery, isn't it? The, the eating disorders, why it strikes some people. There's a genetic component. Is it passed down the generations? Because I was talking to scientists about this. Is there a, a gene that kind of makes you more likely to to develop an eating disorder? I think there there is a growing body of research into looking at all the possible underlying factors. And I think the the bulk of the research points to these factors interacting. So whilst we may not know a huge amount at the moment around genes, although there has been some research in that area, it's it's the expression of the genes, isn't it, Teresa, that seems to be the real focus of research in terms of yeah. how does the environment the person is in prompt those genes to express themselves and there's for sure um, a growing body of research in relation to eating difficulties and and struggles and transgenerational trauma with trauma being any experience where we feel overwhelmed and unable to cope or fight back in some way so that could be a relational trauma that could be a feeling of um, a loss of connection or not good enoughness or um, a sense of being unworthy We've all been there. <laughs> um, yes yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah and then that um, interacting with other factors you know perhaps physiological factors as well um can then lead a person to perhaps a sense of maybe a way that I can feel better and um, maybe a way that I can stop feeling the shame that I'm feeling maybe the way that I can come to a sense of myself as a good person is by changing the physical appearance. And I think so often this is um, also mixed in with environmental factors around the cultural and societal myth that somehow appearance says something about who we are as beings in terms of um, our lovability, I suppose. And if, if you're a person and you're feeling, um, 
you're feeling low in self-esteem, you're feeling low self-worth, you're wondering how you can lift those feelings and how you can make yourself more lovable. And you look to the environment and try to find clues. It's no wonder really that often the clue we find is and something tangible that we believe we can do, that we have some sense of agency over, is if I change my physical appearance, I'll be more more lovable. Also, I'll be safe somehow, because I'll be safe from rejection, and I'll have a feeling of wholeness. Um, the sad aspect is, I guess, or the understandable aspect, that is that the, the master plan fails to deliver because you know you you may lose the weight you may have the teeth straightened you may clear up the skin whatever appearance project it is but the feelings of low self-worth and shame are still there and and then what do you do well then maybe you go on to another appearance project or maybe you work even harder to lose weight and that can become itself a self-amplifying cycle fascinating um well actually what's where the pandemic is really you know you know if you were looking to try and with our appearance <laughs> you know we can't go to the hairdressers and the salons and the mm. beauty treatments at the moment and I'm so glad everyone listening this is a podcast because I cut my fringe this morning for the first time ever <laughs> not good <laughs> not good everyone so I'll be staying away <laughs> anyway I'm making light of something that's very serious but it's at the moment you know we you know we can't pluck and preen like we used to so uh, have you seen the news readers now who are doing their own makeup and it's it's this subtle shift we're seeing in the media because of how people are having and, and people do you know these celebrities never doing their zooms and each time they look slightly more disheveled and and yet they're <laughs> more more alive and more real and more engaging because they can't rely on their appearance they have to call something forth within them because they can't look as polished as they they would like to. I, it's it's fascinating. Also, another thing I found, I, I wouldn't say that everyone who has an eating disorder is a saint by by no means, but from the people that I know who have struggled with this, they tend to be really kind, compassionate, sweet people. And it's it's that frustration is why is it people like that who are so hard on themselves? Have you any thoughts about that? Mm. And I think maybe that also speaks to the experiences people might have had, both that because perhaps they have that sensitivity and that sense of compassion and empathy, that those experiences, particularly relational experiences that have been difficult, are so painful that therefore um, the fear of rejection is so great that therefore it leads a person very deeply into something like disordered eating. And I think also then the experiences themselves informing that a little bit in terms of, you know, if if I've had a lot of relational experiences that have led me to question my self-worth, then maybe it is that that sensitivity is increased in some way. I also think there's something about having an open heart and with that open heart, then being quite vulnerable in letting other people in. And in that vulnerability... The, the possibility to be hurt to be greater and it's that dichotomy isn't it Teresa you know as we are the more vulnerable we are the deeper in many ways we connect with people but by the same token the more vulnerable we are the more we open ourselves up to that to that hurt and then how do we deal with that hurt well I guess in a million ways but one of those possible ways is to to go to food which is a 
you know, it's a, it's a relational experience. It's one of the earliest nurturing experiences that we have. It's no wonder that we perhaps go to that and also to the body to try and make sense of the pain that we're feeling. Yeah. Um, like everyone listening can hear Nicole's voice. You can just tell what kind of person she is and why I invited her on here, can't you? You can just hear the compassion and, and the gentleness in your voice even. Um, and as I said, I, I just get so frustrated that these, these I want people now, now I've gone through the journey and I, if I do see, encounter people who are, are suffering like this, it's like I want them to see how amazing they are and how the world needs kindness and compassion and the intuition and the sensitivity that they have more than ever. Um, I do think that, that people who have eating disorders are highly sensitive potentially psychic potentially have this ability to heal and um, I really hope that if you are listening and you've got an eating disorder that you see it as a sign that you're this you are sensitive and sensitivity is a strength and not a weakness mm. if we could see kindness as not a weakness and again I, I feel that's so wonderful right now that we're beginning to see kindness for the strength it is because in 2019, I don't know if you, you know, it's it was almost like, you know, being selfish and you know, <laughs> was where you had to be. And right now that, that, that shifted. But I'm going to turn the spotlight back to you, Nicole. And I know you weren't like that because you're, you are mm-hmm. such a selfless person. Um, um, I mean, you look amazing now. I mean, obviously people can't see you, but if people track you down online, you're absolutely beautiful. Um, can you Tell us a little bit, if it's not too painful, about your journey um, to eating disorder and what was your trigger to to start your healing journey? Thank you, Teresa. Yes, I'd be more than happy to say something about that. And it, for me, it was I was quite young, I suppose. I was sort of 12, 13 when I started to restrict what I was eating. And I think at that time, for sure, I had very low sense of self-worth and self-esteem, but also my self-concept was very shaky. I didn't feel I had, I felt I was of no substance. I felt I couldn't connect with a personality or a, you know, if you'd have asked me at that age, what was my favourite colour? I would have said to you, well, what What do you want my favourite colour to be? Mm. You know, I just, I was a shapeshifter. I was always shifting into what I thought people wanted of me and what people needed of me. And that was also... Um, informed by familial aspects you know where my parents themselves had experienced a a huge amount of trauma in their childhood and I think I felt and again that comes back to the sensitivity I felt like I really needed to look after them even from a very young age and I felt I needed to keep them safe somehow but I also had to give them the best daughter because you know that was that's what they deserved so I had to be the very best daughter but I wasn't sure what that looked like I often felt confused because some some of the ways that I was treated suggested I wasn't such a good daughter and and that blew my mind because I thought I'm trying so hard and I guess I got to the age of about 11 or 12 and was struggling to sleep and had quite a lot of low mood and it was a bit of a light bulb moment or so it seemed to me and I think that's a really important thing to emphasize that often these experiences or I mean I would say always but I think always is a big word people might have different experiences but the people that I've come across and my own experience was that this began as an, an act of hope actually because people say oh, eating disorders are destructive and I can see why because of the behaviors that are indeed destructive to the physical being and, and the mental um 
the mental aspects as well. But initially, they they start, I think, as an act of hope, an act of, well, actually, maybe if I take this action in my life, I can become closer to my parents. Maybe I'll be easier to love if I'm smaller. Maybe I'll be more lovable if I'm not perceived to be greedy. Maybe um, by telling myself before I go to bed at night all the things I have and haven't eaten, that's going to comfort me when I can't sleep. So, you know, it started off as a bit of a, a, a desire for change, really, a desire for for betterment of myself because I believed myself to be not very good and, and um, lovable at all. And then that then takes on a life of its own, I think, Teresa, because then mm. the physical aspects come in that can also fuel um, the, the kind of obsession and compulsion that can happen around food. But also mm. then I think we get very mixed messages and I hear this so often from people, you know, when they first start perhaps losing weight or engaging in whatever appearance project they engage in, they might get some positive feedback. And that's kind of sad that we're wired that way. And I wonder if that might shift actually as a result of the current pandemic. But that that almost then reinforces that sense of I'm on the right track, I'm doing a good thing here, I need to keep going. I think also there's an aspect of this where there's a desire for separation. There's a desire... I think there's an innate desire for our soul to be connected to all beings and knows it is, absolutely. And then there's also a human psyche desire to somehow separate and individuate. And I think where, especially in adolescence, and perhaps this is one reason why disordered eating can emerge so strongly at this time, where there's a sense of... um, feeling unable to stand one's ground, stand up for themselves, have the classic kind of teenage rebellion and therefore begin to separate from the caregivers. This can be a very difficult and painful, but also quite powerful way to separate. I think probably saying no to a meal was the first time I'd ever said no to anything to my parents. So there's that aspect, I believe, as well, that aspect of... Um, finding our boundaries and wanting to state our boundaries but really not quite knowing how to navigate that and how to do it um, mm-hmm. and then finding ourselves a bit stuck because if that becomes one's only way to state one's position and state one's boundaries where does one go when when there's a desire to and also support for recovery um, how do we then find our no how do we then stand up and say this is my favourite colour, I like this, I don't like this. I think that's mm-hmm. part of the journey, that, that journey of self-discovery, really. What's your favourite colour, Nicole? I just had <laughs> Purple! <laughs> yes, of course it would be, the spiritual, the int- I love that. <laughs> I mean, it's so, it is, body image positivity is so important, isn't it? It's so huge. And some people just don't seem to have an issue with it, but there are a growing body of, of young people who do. I mean, I notice in my children that there have been times and I've been very conscious of it, um, of trying to send positive messages about who you are rather than how you look. Do you think this is this currently taught in schools? I don't know. It's been a while since I've been in the school scene. Um, is it is there more growing awareness teachers given tips about this? Is 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 it in the curriculum anywhere? Do you think it should be? I think it is. Um, I think it's difficult because there are so many things to cover. I know in the personal, social and health aspect of the curriculum, the PSHE, um, that there are sections on body image. And I know also a lot of charities create packs and things. So 
Um, with the BDD Foundation, for example, we've recently created some resources. I know that BEAT, the Eating Disorder Charity, have created some resources from schools. Um, I think there's that, and I think it's really important to teach it. But then I think the wider question is how in education settings, and indeed work settings, all settings really, how do we keep that conversation open so that if a person is struggling, it's quite clear that they, there is someone that they can go to and speak with and there isn't going to be a sense of minimisation because that's mm. another thing, I think, especially with adolescents. You know, they, and I hear it all the time, they go to their GP or they go to their head of year at school and they say, look, I, I feel a bit overweight and I'm really feeling quite depressed about it and I want to lose weight. And the response they get is, oh, all teenagers feel like that. Don't worry, you'll grow out of it. And then that shuts it down. And that young yeah. person actually is very distressed. And what they require is a longer, deeper discussion, but also acknowledgement that that's really hard and some ideas about how they can healthfully um, support themselves out of that very difficult place. Well, I'm with, with you. We talk about your books in a minute. I feel it is a kind of a, an awakening as well, mm. uh, the, the journey through eating disorders and indeed any kind of addiction because it is the, for me they are a kind of like a real shedding of an old skin and a, an awakening mm-hmm. to something newer and stronger and more insightful. And in a way, people who have been through that harrowing journey, in a way, their eyes are open and I do think they see the world in a very, very different way. I'm not saying, I'm not trying to not say it's a positive experience in any way. I wouldn't want anyone to go through it, but also trying to look at what what we can gain from it Yes. rather than what we, we we do lose a lot but I think we also gain a huge it's, it's similar in a way to bereavement as well which is another mm-hmm. huge spiritual awakening when you lose someone very important to you and you have to redefine yourself yeah and in a way the battle to overcome this food compulsion is finally being able to say yeah I've I've walked that path and I've overcome it is incredibly empowering um did you also a yoga expert? I read that in your bio that you you did that help in your recovery? Um, your your interest in yoga and do you do yoga every day? T- t- tell us about that. Is it a, a huge part? Obviously, it's a huge part of your life. Mm, thank you, Teresa. Yeah, it's been a huge part of my life and a huge element to my journey through this and with this. Really, I think firstly the act the the sense that it's an embodied practice so much of the treatment I received for disordered eating was very kind of heady you know lots of and often people that struggle um, with eating you know they're quite good at being up in their head because actually one of the ways that we've learned to cope is to disconnect from the body in a sense you know it's the body becomes objectified I need to do something to the body and somehow I'm up in the head making decisions about how I change the body in order to feel better about myself so therefore anything that's going to support kind of coming back down into the body and that connection with those interoceptive signals those lived experiences of the body from the inside I think is going to be really really helpful on a, on a purely physiological level but also on a level of identity because I think if one feels very disconnected from their body that can even more confuse the sense of identity in multiple ways and it can have a funny kind of flip-flop experience whereby you feel so identified with the body because that's where all of your attention goes and and 
in many cases that's where you feel perhaps that's who you are you are the body because when you change the body you are going to be a good person so those things are intertwined in some respect and then the other position whereby actually the body's got nothing to do with me I hate it I want to be um, as far away from my experience of it as possible and both of those positions are really painful and I think what yoga's helped me to do, apart from increase my interoceptive awareness, actually connect with feelings like hunger in the body, feelings like my breathing rate and my heartbeats, all of those things. It's also helped me to find an identity beyond those, those physical experiences as well. It's that sense of, um, I love the description of, of yoga being a connection of the finite to the infinite. And I've so, had so many experiences, trees are like that on the mat, where through the movement, I've brought, brought my body into a relaxed enough state to sit for a while. And I sit with myself and I really stay with all of those sensations, all of those experiences in the body, all of the thoughts that are coming up, all of the emotions that are rushing to the surface, because somehow I've kind of twisted and squeezed them out of my tissues and then dropped into this sense of, hey, you know, I'm yes my body's there and the sensations are there and the thoughts are there and then there's this self that observes all of it that's the witnessing presence to all of it and that witnessing presence hasn't changed um, at any point in my life when I was struggling with the disordered eating before I imagine it's the same witnessing presence that will be there when I'm 82 you know that will be there after this body has gone there's a real sense of connection to to my soul I suppose, that that um, timeless part of myself. And when I understood that's who I was, not um, cognitively, but actually had a, an experience in my body of, wow, this is, this is who I am, then suddenly, you know, the weight on the scale, how frizzy my hair is, you know, any of those things just feels not to be at all relevant anymore. Um, and that's very releasing and very empowering and very... Um, as you say, that's a transformation. That's an absolute transformation. Just listening to you feels transformative and healing. That was so eloquent, Nicole. I don't think you realised how beautiful what you just said was. And if you like what you're hearing, and I know that you will, I urge you to check out Nicole and her books. I'm going to ask her about her books in a minute. Um, I'm very, very honoured, actually, because she asked me to write a short preface to one of her books. And I couldn't, I was absolutely delighted and couldn't wait. Of course, the subject of that book was body image. But I'll let you, could you just tell us a bit about your books now that are out and where people can find a copy? Thank you, Teresa. And thank you for your kind words. Um, yeah, the books are really, um, all my desire for the books is that they will be supportive. I suppose I've, as perhaps many writers do, written what I, I would have liked to have read when I was struggling, what I would have found helpful and what I struggled to find. Um, so there is False Bodies, True Selves, and that's very much going into the literature in all sorts of aspects of appearance-focused identity struggles, but also speaking a bit about my journey um, towards that true self through the experience, not in spite of it, um, but, but because of it. And then um, Bodies Arising, which you so kindly wrote, such a lovely forward for, um, is is a more practical, less of the research and more of, okay, now 
what do we do about it? And there's lots of meditations in there and practices, very simple and short ones that I've personally, I've put them in there because I've used them for years and because I know how uh, transformative and supportive and nourishing they've been for me, um, for people to try out and see, see if it may also be supportive for them in some way. Thank you. And um, if you have struggled with body image in any way, highly recommend Nicole's book. But even if you hasn't, haven't struggled with it, I still recommend it as well because they are spiritually transformative reads. They're very, very inspiring and also interesting the way she describes it and her, and, and her honesty about her own journey. Highly, highly recommended. Where can people get hold of a copy? Thank you, Teresa. Um, I believe they're on Amazon. I believe the publishers themselves. So Rutledge, Routledge, I'm never quite sure how to pronounce them. Um, no, I don't. I didn't know. I've heard people so, say Rutledge and I don't like saying Rutledge. It just feels rather Rutledge. I know. Routledge. It doesn't sound quite right, does it? And then, um, <laughs> John Hunt's O-Books for um, Teresa Rising. And then if people have young people that they're supporting with two clinicians at the Maudsley, we have a book coming out with Jessica Kingsley in the summer with Ooh. Parents Guide uh, to Body Dysmorphia. So that's also um, soon to be available. Where can people find out about you? Do you have a website? I do. I have a website. So I probably need to update it. <laughs> it's I know, it's so much. I need to, but given all that yoga and your writing and everything you're doing, I don't have time. <laughs> but where do you, what is your website? Is that a way for people to contact you if they wanted to? Absolutely. My email's on the website and that's just nicoleschnackenberg.com. And, and the spelling will be in the write-up with, with this episode. Oh, Nicole, thank you from my heart for this this um, fascinating um, interview. I, I really feel calmer already just talking to you. And I'm just going to close with one question, which is really quite daft, really, but I did it in season one just to sort of make the scientists <laughs> unsettled. <laughs> and it's um, I did debate whether to do it for season two, given the pandemic, but then I thought, hey, laughter boosts mood and immunity, so why not? Um, and um, my question is a tribute, as my season one question was, to my obsession with the Lord of the Rings. I love it. Mm. And that's why this season, this podcast is called White Shores, because all Lord of the Rings fans will know the significance of that. White Shores is spirit. It's it's where the elves go. Um, it's it's it's. I, in its way, it's heaven, it's bliss, it's, it's the mm. invisible and unseen. So I've got one question you shall not pass, and I say that for a reason. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a question and if you don't know feel free to say um, you don't know as I can tell you 98% of the guests that I asked <laughs> have said I don't know okay which character in Lord of the Rings is not tempted by the ring Gandalf no <laughs> <laughs> Now, the reason I said it's the question you shall not pass is because if you've got the correct answer, please email me at angeltalk710 at aol.com and I will offer you a free a dream interpretation, if you like, or a birthday profile. So I'm really glad you got it wrong, Nicole, because <laughs> somebody can benefit from a free I'm gift. I'm glad yes. <laughs> So your intuition was right to not kind of flag it or to quickly Google. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, thank you so much for indulging me there and thank you for your precious time and uh, just thank you for all you do and, and being an inspirational example I, I i want this podcast to point people towards people i believe are true in walking inspirations who actually don't just talk about spirituality but live it 
the second part, you know, a lot of people talk about spirituality today, but not all of them live it, probably myself included. Actually, we're not perfect, but you seem to tick both those boxes. So thank you very, very much for taking the time to walk on White Shores. Thank you. And before this episode closes, with a musical gift for you to close your eyes and visualise the pure love, wonder, beauty of White Shores, I want to thank you all from my heart for being present and for being you. Keep being amazing spiritual you. The world needs your compassionate light more than ever. Thank you also to Clan Re for the opening theme track. And if you have any questions, stories or insights you want to share with me, you can always connect to me via my Teresa Chung author pages on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter and YouTube, as well as www.teresachung.com and my trusty angeltalk710 at aol.com email. I aim to reply to everyone, but bear with me if things get busy. And now it's time, the language that the angels speak, music takes centre stage. If you want to know the title of the piece, which is played by or selected by my son and Royal College of Music scholar Robert, because it resonates powerfully with the theme of this specific episode, you can find the title in the show notes. Sending you my love and gratitude.